0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Joanne Baumgartner is the Executive Director of Wild Farm Alliance. She's the author of many publications on the intersection between biodiversity conservation and agriculture, including beneficial birds, the conservation mandates within the National Organic Program regulations, and co-management of food safety and conservation. Before joining Wild Farm Alliance in 2001, she addressed crop, livestock, and fiber issues, was senior research editor for a book of California's rare wildlife species, and was an organic farmer for over a decade. We should start at the very beginning and with the basics. I really don't know much about what wild farming means. And I dare say there's probably a lot of people who have questions about exactly what protecting biodiversity and everything on a farm in agriculture really means.
1: Farming with the wild means different things to different people. To conservationists, it means wildlife movement corridors for predators and practicing predator friendly farming like our uh, wild farm advisor, Becky Weed does. It means protecting water and creekside habitat for rare fish, like our farmer board member, Peter Martinelli does. It means restoring cropland edges with hedgerows and riparian areas. And it means fostering plant diversity in grazing lands for livestock and for the wild. But for a farmer, especially a farmer that's just getting started, it could mean supporting beneficial insects and beneficial birds that offer pest control services, providing for pollinators that then help them with better crop pollination, keeping the soil covered that they work so hard to build, and managing the farm in a way that will survive the drought. And there's all kinds of wildlife that interact with agriculture. Some are beneficial, and we are helping farmers understand how to support them. Some don't have an impact but need a place to live or move through, and we're encouraging farmers to accommodate them. And if fewer pests, we are helping farmers understand how to manage for specific pest species, not, for example, generic birds or predators. And we educate farmers to take action, increase the biological activity on their farms one way or another, that means conserving and increasing wildlife habitat. We had a farmer field day the other day, and it was about birds, beneficial birds, which I want to talk more about. And the farmer was discussing how he restored a wetland, which now supports a lot of birds. But he also monitored the wetland and and the water quality and found that the water entering was now or the water leaving the farm was now cleaner than the water entering the farm so it's just an example of how conservation practices often offer multiple benefits so it's supporting the birds but it's also protecting water quality and that same wetland is supporting insects supporting other kinds of animals it provides a corridor And in events like this, it's really great to have farmers telling other farmers what they're doing and why they're doing it, why they're farming with the wild.
0: Awesome. I love the the keyword corridor.
1: Yeah, well, probably the easiest way to support wildlife movement in a corridor is if the farm has riparian habitat to conserve that habitat and restore what's Uh, Some of what's missing, obviously, if it's a crop farmed, they're not going to restore the whole farm, which might be, you know, often um, farms are down in lowland areas. They're flat, easy to farm, and used to be riparian. But giving that riparian area uh, some room is really ideal for animals moving through, but also animals that live there year round, like birds, that can support. Uh, the farm with pest control and also beneficial insects because what's interesting about beneficial insects is they need they'll come in and eat or and or kill the pest insect but when that pest insect isn't there on the crop you still want that beneficial insect around and so they can be around in in uh wild areas and riparian areas that uh support their alternate food source. And so they can exist on that source uh, when the crop pest isn't around. But another way to support corridors is to provide hedgerows because while hedgerows are um, planted habitat as opposed to restoring habitat, um, when using native plants can be effective at supporting some wildlife movement, especially birds and some studies are showing that it's important for nest success. Sparrows actually do better in, in nesting in, in hedgerows that are connected.
0: How does a, a farm that you guys work with that does the kind of wild farming that you're talking about look different from the road?
1: Uh, at least something flowering if there are like here uh, where I am on the west coast, there are farms that will plant alyssum strips every 12 or so rows and 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 maybe the farm is barren other than the crop but those alyssum strips uh, which you know is not it's not very wild but uh in this continuum of practices providing uh flowering plants then supports some beneficial insects and that's why those farmers are planning that so um looking at the landscape from a conservationist perspective, you know, looking, uh, you want to look for uh, the resources that are going to support IPM, Integrated Pest Management, that are going to support those beneficial insects. And in the continuum of things, then we want to see more than just uh, little annual plants. We want to see perennial plants. We want to see them native plants because native plants actually support in general more insects insects that are food for all kinds of organisms than non-native plants Uh, doug talamy who's in the university of delaware has done some really incredible work looking at how many insects that native plants support and back there in the northeast he's documented well he's documented lots of different plants but as an example um oak woodland or oak tree will support 500 different lepidopteran species. So that's caterpillars. And caterpillars are good pro- protein sources. And sometimes if the uh, wild bird doesn't have enough food, they're not going to be successful at raising their young. So looking at that landscape, is there flowers? Is there is there um, perennial habitat? Is it native? And and um, is, is there structure to it? Because well, there are some grassland birds that will live on farms, um, the more structured, I mean, as in shrubs and trees, the better off wildlife will be, the, the more they can, or and especially birds, you know, they need that habitat for cover, they need it for nesting. With, without that, you're not going to draw them in or, or, or not very often.
0: How is the movement itself doing in terms of organic farming? I remember when it first started to get really popular, uh, everybody was saying, well, that's fine, but they're never going to have the same yields. They're not going to be able to feed large populations.
1: Well, there have been several meta-studies that disprove that uh, statement about how you can, organic can never grow enough food to, to feed the world. Um, it that, you know, feeding the world is a complicated issue because uh, there's a lot of small farmers that feed themselves. But when we start talking about industrial ag trying to feed small farmers, it, it really it puts small farmers out of business, which then, you know, messes with the whole economy. And we really need to get back to more local small farming. And as well. So as far as organic growth, it goes. It is growing. I think it's like a $50 billion industry in the US, and it continues to grow. It's growing It's grown a lot in the last few years. Um, it, it has growing pains, of course, but it is a really good option for some farmers that, that uh, want to go that route and don't mind having somebody come in and, and inspect them and having to do that kind of paperwork. Yes, I, I think we have the knowledge to grow foods uh, without toxins. We've been growing. Uh, I think the USDA program has been around for 20 years. That organic program, but organic farming has been going on for eons. And one of the problems with <laughs> organic farming is it's hard to figure out for chemical com- companies to figure out how to make money on it. If they could, I think it would. There would be a switch much faster. Um, but it, but it is happening. They also want to talk a little bit about um, other eco-labels because uh, one of our board members, Dan, can't run Salmon Safe and it is an eco-label in the Northwest that is promoting habitat for fish. Fish like birds are, are kind of an indicator. If you have healthy fish in the stream, you're going to have healthy landscapes too. There's also biodynamic, which requires uh, some holistic thinking where farmers are using animals and are uh, and crops together and uh, thinking more synergistically uh, and, and lots more eco labels. I think the the question is not do we know how to farm that way or if we can uh, you know feed people that way. It's more you know how do we how do we wrestle away the economy from these giant uh, chemical companies, which now are buying up all a lot of the seeds, uh, the, the crop uh, plant seeds, um, which is, you know, one more problem with having too, too much control. We're moving in a really good direction. It's not fast enough for me, but um, we're, right. we have great models.
0: People talk a lot about, uh, lately, regenerative farming. Can you tell us about what that is and how that falls into all of the things we've talked about so far? Uh,
1: regenerative ag is trying to address uh, the impacts of climate, um, both impacts to the farm and impacts to the earth. And so um, what farmers are doing are putting in, are using cover crops and compost, which then build organic matter in the soil, which can turn to soil carbon. Also, and what we are really promoting is getting back to habitat, especially woody habitat, putting in those hedgerows and those oak trees and riparian forests um, uh, and oak woodlands that that store carbon in the woody biomass, because that is going to help Both the farm, remember I was saying how a lot of this habitat is supporting the beneficial organisms. What's happening is as insects, as the planet warms, insect ranges are changing, and it's predicted that there's going to be a lot more invasive pest insects coming into farms. So as farmers armor up with habitat, um, they will be helping themselves. Also, though, when they add that habitat, um, it will be helping uh, birds that are impacted by climate change because we know that their ranges are changing too. And as more habitat is in place for them, they'll be able to find habitat that suits their needs into the future. So this regenerative agriculture is, is about addressing both what is, helps the farm and helps the earth.
0: Um, Tell us a little bit about your programs.
1: Yeah, well, um, first of all, I want to just mention that from the beginning, uh, Dave Foreman has been on our advisory board. And for about 15 years, John Davis was on our board, and now he's on our advisory board. And we are so appreciative of of, of John, and uh, he has helped us to stay true to Wild and Wild Farm Alliance, and also to Dave Foreman, who's just been this awesome inspiration for us. We work on education and we work on policy. The policy we have been working on is related to um, organic agriculture and also to food safety. We uh, has helped the organic community understand that there is a rule, there's always been a rule in the orga- in the USDA organic program that says farmers must maintain or improve soil, water, and then get this, wetlands, woodlands and wildlife. And those last three, I don't think conservationists have understood and in fact the farmers and the certifiers who inspect them hadn't understood that much either. And so through the years we pushed and pushed and and helped get the USDA to start to make sure certifiers were addressing that. And then we uh, wrote initial guidance about that rule that then the USDA um, tweaked uh, and uh, published. Um, And we've worked with organic certifiers, um, certifiers who inspect about 75% of the organic farms in the country to help them uh, change their farmer questionnaires so that they really do address are farms complying with, you know, maintaining wildlife and uh, and uh, these other components, which is about conserving biodiversity. And in fact, it 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 says the rule also uh, in another part says that farmers must conserve must yeah conserve biodiversity. So that's been you know it's progressing and it, it's seen over the years how a lot of organic farmers are have. Change practices. We still have a long way to, to go on that. Um, but another piece of organic uh, policy work we we have been pushing is that it turns out you can you could take a, a beautiful native prairie, uh, a wetland, an oak woodland, and cut it down, pill it up, and one day and certify it organically the next. And you know, we don't think that's right. Uh, the rule, the, when it was written 20 years ago, never addressed that. So this last year, we went to the National Organic Standards Order. Actually, it took several years. But um, last year, they agreed that this was a problem. And they've made a recommendation to USDA to make a rule change to fix that. And once the administration changes, uh, we, uh, we expect that that rule will be in place. We've also worked on food safety issues because, you know, a lot of people are aware of how um, salad mix and, and, and lettuce and other kinds of crops sometimes will um, make people sick, really sick. And so the grocery store buyers, uh, in an effort to protect themselves, have said, oh, okay, well, it's it's about wildlife. We don't want to have any wildlife around. We don't want their habitat. And we uh, worked really hard with the National Sustainable Ag Coalition in DC to first educate Congress and then educate farmers and educate FDA that there are conservation practices that make the farm safer, and that wildlife, while they can carry pathogens, foodborne pathogens, it's it's low, and um, when in isolated cases, they have shown that they are carrying them. It's, it's very often because they are in polluted areas that we've caused, like concentrated animal feeding operations (CAFOs). But some of the conservation practices that help make the farm safer are, are like uh, putting up a barn owl box, and that barn owl is going to help reduce. The rodents which could be carrying pathogens. It's it's putting in windbreaks that intercept dust that could be carrying pathogens that uh, fr- uh, from a nearby livestock operation. It's putting in uh, keeping the soil covered with grasses that filter waterborne pathogens. And it's building the soil to have diverse microbial ecology that outcompetes and predates upon a foodborne pathogen. So all of these conservation aspects of nature help keep us safe and we were able to convince FDA when they wrote produce rules a couple years ago that that it's okay to have wildlife on the farm it's okay to have uh their habitat on the farm but what we weren't successful with and we're still trying to figure out is how do we educate these buyers like going they they think you know they if they treat it like a hospital and it'll you know the sterile more sterile conditions you have, the better. But as we know, hospitals are uh, full of pathogens. So that that scenario doesn't work. We just published this uh, booklet, Supporting Beneficial Birds and Managing Pest Birds. Uh, You can get that on our website, which is wildfarmalliance.org. Really what we're trying to help farmers understand is that they're overwhelmingly songbirds are beneficial because they are feeding insects to their young. To understand this concept that there's predominantly beneficial birds um, like insectivores and which are mostly insectivores. I wanna say sometimes they might uh, need something else, but they're mostly insectivores and carnivores. And so uh, supporting them year round is really helpful to the farm. Helpful to wild nature, and uh, that can be done with habitat, with uh, either structures like boxes and perches, and or planting habitat. There's also omnivores on the farm, and omnivores uh, could be those uh, beneficial birds in the spring, feeding insects to their young, and then later they could be eating the crop. So we want to uh, help farmers understand that they should manage for those birds when they are a problem. But don't put out, uh, you know, discouraging um, sounds and or flashing um, uh, streamers and all kinds of things that they do to discourage. Don't put those out year-round. Only when the birds are a problem, and focus in on which birds are a problem, and only target those. But there's sometimes birds are beneficial, not just when they're feeding insects to so their young, but later um, when the Crop is uh, growing. They might be eating, say, with olives. Here in our area, there's a grower that says that that they they eat very few olives during the while the crop is growing, but afterwards he picks the olives. There's a few left on the trees, and those are termed mummies. And the birds come in and eat those olives, and and actually like he says he's a birder, so he's really paying attention. He says that he and a farmer, and he says that they're mostly eating the the olive mummies that have pest insects in them. And as you could imagine, they probably have a lot more food value. Other studies similar to that, like with almonds, uh, researchers have documented how while the the birds will eat almonds beforehand, they come in afterwards and clean up the mummies that would otherwise harbor uh, pest insects for the next growing season or pest uh, diseases. They clean up those almonds so much so that it actually is cost effective to have the birds there. There's a net benefit and sometimes as much as almost $300 a hectare. Birds are uh, really, they they are not understood as well as we would like them to be. And and this publication seems to really be resonating with folks. I hope people become constituents and sign up to get our communications because you'll we will learn more about
0: that this fall. And there's a lot of really great information at wildfarmalliance.org. Uh, everybody should check that out. I love how uh, you have information facing conservationists, but directly talking to farmers, lots of information there for them to learn about what you're talking about today and, and how your organization can help. I imagine farming can be hard. I imagine it being uh, at different times of the year, very, varying degrees of stressful uh, can you talk about what balance is like? do you feel like you know some farmers who have really got this down to the point where wildlife is really helping them in a lot of ways that other farmers have to make up for chemically or with machinery or other practices that uh, I would imagine the bills for all of those things are very stressful <laughs> the having to take care of everything yourself and not farming with nature at all must be very very stressful um, is it does it feel like your farmers that you uh, work with, or feel more balanced? Are they less stressed? Is is their life different in any material way as a as a farmer?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question, Jack. Um, uh, I I used to farm. Uh, my husband and I had an organic farm for a dozen years, and uh, farming is hard work. Um, it it's long hours. You don't make a lot of money typically, although there are farms that do. Uh, make more than others, and there it's got to be other things that, other reasons why you farm, and I think part of that is the balance. The, the um, I've had farmers definitely tell me that they used to farm the just the crop, and now that they've incorporated wildness into the farm, it's so much more interesting for them. It seems like that uh, increases over time. Like they might start out putting in a bluebird box, um, which we are helping farmers to do and help and we're also doing this cool thing where we're putting up GoPro cameras to capture what the adults are feeding the young. because um, farmers like to know about that. But anyways, they might a farmer might start with just putting up a barn or a bird box and or that Alyssum strip I mentioned and later and start to, oh, you know, that was kind of cool. Maybe I'll do a little bit more and you know, it, it, I think it gives them this creative outlet that otherwise, just growing corn and soybeans year after year, you know, and the struggle of it, and the low prices, and all of the the risk involved with farming. You know, if there isn't some other um, aspect that helps them get through the day, um, then you know, why do it? And and I've heur- I've heard from so many farmers that they, you know, that is the reason they're continuing to farm and also um that their kids want to do it it's you know the, these wow. really industrial farms you don't see that the younger uh, generation uh continuing whereas these when there's a, a farm uh that has incorporated biodiversity the beauty of it and the the that it these farms are often connected with community the community really values them and so that also is part of the balance, I think, is that us people who aren't farming need to find those farmers. I think it's so cool that you said that when you're walking by a farm, you're wondering who who is that person and you know, what are they doing? How how are they managing? And we need to be thinking, we as Uh, when I put on my conservation hat, we have to be really thinking about, you know, where we get our food from. And as much as possible, um, get to know your farmers, get to buy from uh, farm stands from, if there's a CSA, a community-supported agriculture program uh, from a farm, be part of that. That's where you um, pre-purchase boxes, well, or not, but, boxes of produce from uh, uh, the same farmer every week um, and or you picked And when when you get out on the farm and get to know the farmer c- farmers really do respond to their customers they want to keep you and uh the more they hear about how you value the the landscape not not just for the view shed but that is part of it but for the um ecosystem services that they're providing the better the balance is—it's—it's uh, tr- it's tricky. It's tricky, but it's also—I it, think it's a- also what keeps farmers moving in this direction—is this bringing in this wild balance more.
0: Yeah, I really picked up on on that idea of interesting or staying interested. And, you know, you hear a lot of farmers talk about nobody knows the land better and and why they're attracted to the family business or maybe they're new farmers and that's why they were attracted to it. But uh, to me, it seems pretty obvious when you look, when you think about, and I have an indelible imprint in my brain, as everybody does growing up in Indiana, of what a farm looks like what an Indiana farm looks like, typically. Talk about uninteresting. I mean, there's just not (laughs) an awful lot going on and it's uh, the monocultures and all of that kind of stuff. And it seems to take the soul right out of what a farmer would probably, and what I've heard several say before, why they were drawn to it, why they like it. A lot of people probably reluctantly ended up having that kind of farm. And so for people like you to be out there showing them another way, showing them how to really make the land come back to life and support species and corridors uh, connectivity and take up some of the processes that they have to do manually. It just seems like, man, I wish your group was a thousand times bigger and you were in every state and you had agents from, from every state going out and talking to people about just doing a rows or just doing the bird boxes at first and getting them hooked later.
1: It's not just us. Well, we are, uh, this small organization that uh, I think with a big voice and, and really um, able to respond to opportunities and crises. There are others out there that are doing some really cool jobs. Xerces um, the Society for Invertebrate Conservation, that's a, a group that um, knows so much about beneficial insects and also pollinators, so I encourage people to uh, look at what they're doing and um, the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service gets millions and millions and millions of dollars from the Farm Bill to help farmers put in conservation practices just like we're talking about. What the NRCS doesn't do is they're not a regulator regulator so that's good because the regulators make farmers nervous but they are not really big advocates for uh, anything, they'll, they come to a farm and say, what do you want to do?" And, and they'll try and help them fix some crisis situation, some huge erosion problem. Depending on the NRCS person, um, they wouldn't necessarily tell them, well, you should put in a, you know a wildlife corridor here or there. Or, um, although they are getting more uh, interested and, and pushing more pollinator habitat in part because their sea society is working with them closely on that. And so NRCS is is definitely uh, a really good uh, resource for farmers. They're all around the country. They're in every state. They're in almost every county uh, of the country. Looking at this from the top down, we as conservationists really could help push things forward by being engaged when they're at times when we need to push for more farm bill money that goes into NRCS for these conservation programs. And currently, a lot of the farm bill money goes into crop insurance, which is really just bolstering these huge uh, monocultures of corn and soybeans and, uh, and other monocultures around the country, as opposed to putting a lot of money, sure, let's still support farmers But let's give them the money if they're going to put in hedgerows, if they're going to restore those riparian areas. But another uh, emerging funding resource for farmers is climate change money. Here in California, we have this cap and trade program, which is a polluter pays kind of program where there's lots of money being generated. And Some of it is getting directed into sustainable agriculture, into putting carbon in the ground, like with the the compost and the cover crops, and also carbon and woody uh, plants like hedgerows and riparian forests and so forth. And that is, this year, farmers were allocated $15 And we want to see that number increase. We here at Wild Farm Alliance help some farmers access that money, for instance, to put in a seven acre wetland and to put in, you know, more of this woody, all this woody vegetation I've been talking about. So whether or not it's cap and trade or some other kind of climate model, we need to focus our money and resources into funds that are going to help farmers both survive climate change and um, for the planet to survive it too. Uh, through, you know, some of the practices that they can do to help store carbon.
0: I feel a hopeful message in what you've shared today.
1: Oh, good. Well, thank you, Jack, and thank you for your work. I love the podcast that you're putting together and uh, love the work of the Rewilding Institute.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.